So estrogen actually plays a role in the metabolism of serotonin and other neurotransmitters that affect our sleep-wake cycle, like melatonin. Welcome to This Functional Life, a show for women just like you, who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, purpose. We're going to deconstruct norms, uncover your deepest desires, harness your physical and mental health, and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what you want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking complex science and making it easy to understand and integrate into daily life. Join the journey to make this chapter the best ever. Let's get thriving. So welcome everyone to This Functional Life. And today I really want to talk a little deeper about sleep. So if you've watched This Functional Life or listened to This Functional Life podcast before, you know that sleep is one of the most important options and important lifestyle changes that we can make to actually help our body recover. And it is vital to our actual function. But as we know, when women go into perimenopause and menopause, we have some very particular changes to our biochemistry that seem to affect sleep. So what we're going to talk today is what are some of the issues that we see during sleep and what's some of the underlying causes that you probably haven't heard of. So on average, about 12% of women at any given time experience some sleep problems. But as we age, we get into our 40s and 50s, that number increases dramatically. It depends on who you read, but it's up to generally the consensus is at least 40% of women have ongoing sleep issues that become common and worsen over that time period and continue through menopause. So when a woman reaches menopause, you know, which is one year after the last time they've had their period, that's on average around age 52. You know, and what's really happening there is ultimately the ovaries are producing less and less estrogen and the adrenal glands have already kind of petered out on the progesterone levels, usually a little bit earlier than that. And the perimenopause to menopausal time period, so the average time period of symptoms is eight years. So what that means is some women are lucky enough to skirt those issues. And we've talked about some of those reasons why some women may not experience significant menopausal symptoms. But that means also that women are sometimes on the other side of that equation and may experience up to two decades of symptoms. So what's commonly associated with sleep issues? So first off is menopausal symptoms can vary, obviously, from woman to woman, but we know that there are some common things that tend to occur. So one of them is the vasomotor changes that we see. And what that is, is a very fancy way of saying the control of things like body temperature and body temperature can obviously affect sleep because a lot of women experience things like hot flashes and night sweats, not only during the day, but especially night sweats and hot flashes at night. And what that does is end up causing you to wake up, not only because you're hot and sweaty, but it's actually changing your hormonal makeup at that time. Most of the time, the hot flashes really feel like they're starting in the face and upper chest and sort of spread through the body from the inside out. And the average hot flash can last from anywhere from 30 seconds to five minutes. And about 75 to 85% of women experience hot flashes for a long period of time, months, if not years. So when these things happen at night, they're called a night sweat. When we get hot, our bodies actually get to heat up. It causes a surge of other hormones. So we get a little bit of a surge of cortisol, which is going to help draw us out of sleep. 
And we see an increase in adrenaline as well as the body heats up. It's actually an adrenaline response. So our sleep quality as women are going to suffer when we experience that because we have basically dumped a bunch of stress chemistry into our bloodstream. And so often once we've woken up, we're not only hot and sweaty, we may have to change our pajamas and maybe even change our sheets, but we are now forcing full of adrenaline, which makes it harder to go to sleep. Insomnia, which I'm going to classify separately because insomnia is described as really having a difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, and especially if that occurs more than three nights a week. Um, I like to classify these as two different things because what I often find is women experience insomnia a little bit, which is where they can't fall asleep. Maybe their mind is racing. Maybe they have ongoing things. They just can't get everything to shut down at night. What I find to be more common is we can fall asleep anywhere. We're so tired. We can fall asleep. We just can't stay there. So we get sleep interruption. So what we know is that one in seven adults, regardless of sex, experience some sort of chronic sleep disordered patterns, whether it's insomnia or interrupted sleep. For women, that nearly doubles to one in four. And we experience symptoms of insomnia or interrupted sleep. That's consistent. And it increases to 61% of menopausal and postmenopausal women start to experience sleep issues. Insomnia and disrupted sleep is significant. We also see sleep disordered breathing. This is a very broad topic, and I'm going to do several, several interviews and actually conversations about this. So disordered breathing can be everything from obstructive sleep apnea, which is where the airway actually gets compressed to the extent that you're gasping and wheezing and you have a reduction in your, in your oxygen saturation. Most of the time, you've probably been told at one point you may be snoring. Often it, it is audible when somebody's having those issues. And obstructive sleep apnea is expected to affect about 2% of women. However, I think that that number is very, very much underreported. And during perimenopause, that number goes up to about 4% with each year. So what we see is we see increasing likelihood of sleep apnea as we age. Some of this is because we see a reduction in the hormone progesterone, which occurs in our 40s. What that seems to do is it actually contributes to the development of sleep apnea. So, and it also appears that progesterone may prevent some of the relaxation of the upper airway, which can cause a lapse in breathing that's associated with obstructive sleep apnea. So basically we have a small air tube back here. And particularly when we're in REM sleep, that air tube gets compressed. And as we go through perimenopause in our starting really in our forties, we see this significant drop in progesterone and those muscles basically get more lax. You get more compression, which brings me to another sleep issue. So if you're watching this on screen or you've seen any pictures of me and it's 2022, I have braces on and it's truly because I had upper airway resistance syndrome, which is a close cousin to obstructive sleep apnea. And essentially what that is, is an airway compression that happens in that airway back in the air pipe, the windpipe in your throat. And when you go into REM sleep, we are actually paralyzed in REM sleep. So at that time, your body is not moving. You can't move your body. And as that paralysis sort of clicks in so the body can actually do significant restoration, the compression of the airway becomes smaller and smaller. So a way to sort of visualize this is think that you have a normal size straw, which is what you're normally breathing through. When you go into REM sleep, it compresses down to a cocktail straw. So you get very little air. 
At some point, this often progresses to obstructive sleep apnea, but it doesn't always. And essentially what happens in upper airway resistance syndrome is that compression happens to the extent that there's this constant stimulation of the arousal centers in the brain. So imagine having 42 arousals every hour while you're sleeping. That's essentially what my arousal numbers were on my sleep study. So essentially what was happening is my brain was having these little moments every few moments of what I was in this constant arousal state. So it was keeping me from going into those deep restorative sleep patterns that were really necessary. And so I went through a thing called palate expansion with an AGA device where we actually caused my upper palate to grow, made space between my teeth. And then now I've got the braces on to sort of realign things. This actually occurred because when I was a child and you had crowded teeth, we just removed the extra teeth rather than encouraging when you're growing additional bone growth to really expand the palate and widen the smile, essentially. So going back and doing that now has actually flattened my palate out, gave me more airway and pulled my jawline forward, which has enabled me to actually get more air. And if you don't think this is meaningful, I can tell you that I track my sleep. I've been tracking my sleep for almost four years on an Aura device, and it has significantly changed. Even more so when, when I'm a cyclist, I enjoy cycling, and I am actually two miles an hour faster after having done this with my breathing than I was before at a younger age. So airway is really, really important. So you could also have upper airway resistance syndrome where you're not necessarily snoring, but you're having this this lack of decent oxygen enough to arouse the brain. Again, your oxygen sat may not really pop down so low that you're losing oxygen, but it is enough to hit those arousal centers of the brain. So there's also other mood and sleep disorders that we see, things like restless leg syndrome, periodic limb movement disorder. And these are uncomfortable and you get these sort of uncomfortable sensations like you need to move your legs. We see this quite a bit. We don't actually have good research saying that it occurs in women more than men or occurs more, but we know it occurs more as we age. So there's probably a hormonal component, but there's not good literature showing that. Often restless leg is also associated with things like iron deficiency, magnesium, deficiency, even calcium can play a role here as well, which are all vital nutrients for women, regardless of our age. Menopause also has increases in mood disorders and other issues with irritability, depression, and anxiety. And obviously, if I'm already having issues with anxiety or depression, we see an increase in sleep problems along with those. Let's talk about how some of those hormones really affect it. So menopause occurs, right, when the ovaries stop producing estrogen and the adrenal glands stop producing progesterone. And these are the two hormones that really, really impact our fertility and then also our lives from a reproductive standpoint. For example, progesterone may affect breathing, like we talked about. So as it declines, we see uh, lower levels of progesterone and increased problems with sleep apnea. One of the other things that happens with the reduction in progesterone is progesterone holds open the receptors. So think of that as like a keyhole in your brain, one of your major neurotransmitters called GABA. And so when progesterone declines, it's kind of like that keyhole sort of got locked up. And so when I don't have enough GABA or I don't have effective use of GABA, I'm going to have a reduction in the use of it, which is going to have more likelihood for me to fall asleep, but not be able to stay there. Well, we have other hormones that play a role and other neurotransmitters that play a role in sleep inertia, so the act of getting sleepy and falling asleep, and staying asleep. 
So estrogen actually plays a role in the metabolism of serotonin and other neurotransmitters that affect our sleep-wake cycle like melatonin. So estrogen also keeps our body temperatures lower at night. In order to fall asleep, our core body temperature needs to go down and that actually helps us fall asleep and it makes it more conducive for us to sleep. And estrogen also has an antidepressant effect because it affects, again, the uh, metabolism of serotonin and the production of melatonin. Another thing that we often see is we start to get changes in our sleep-wake cycle, particularly as we age. And that sleep-wake cycle is known as the circadian rhythm. And we should follow essentially what we see on the planet. So we should wake when the sun comes up, become tired as the sun goes down, and go to sleep shortly after the sun goes down. What we start to see is we start to see fatigue earlier in the evening and waking up earlier in the morning. So many women will say, gosh, you know, I can fall asleep anywhere, but I'm going to wake up at 4 a.m., which leads to a lower sleep window, which increases the risk for all the sleep issues that we see. We see that that not only does estrogen and progesterone affect GABA and serotonin significantly, they affect the production and the metabolism of it as well. So then the question really becomes, if we're going to experience all these problems and they're associated with our hormones, why then does the medical system choose to treat the symptoms of menopause with drugs that don't really treat the underlying cause of the symptoms we're experiencing? So the most common drugs that are prescribed for sleep are things like your benzodiazepines, the Xanax of the world, which are highly addictive. Now we know that they increase your likelihood for dementia and Alzheimer's over time because they alter sleep architecture and they also alter the brain. You also have all the other drugs, the Lunestas and the Ambiens of the world, which are really not sleep drugs. They just anesthetize you. So they knock you out, but they don't improve or even affect good sleep architecture. And sleep architecture is the rhythm of your REM sleep and deep sleep and light REM throughout the night, which is required because each step helps the body recover and rebuild the brain. What we have are drugs that we prescribe for sleep that don't even address the underlying cause, which is the loss of our estrogens as we go through menopause and the loss of progesterone that happens almost a decade prior to that. When we look at treatments, we know that estrogen replacement therapy, which increases estrogen and adding progesterone, and I would also argue testosterone, brings those levels back up and they have proven effect in relieving menopausal symptoms, including hot flashes, insomnia, mood issues, vaginal dryness, sexual dysfunction, and you name it. We're going to have lots of conversations about the whole should you or shouldn't you replace. Now, the good thing is, is I'm a clinical nutritionist and a researcher, and I have spent my entire PhD career actually looking at hormone metabolism. And the beauty is, is I don't prescribe as a nutrition professional. So when I'm giving you my unguarded opinions and information, I'm pulling it directly from the literature, and I also have no vested direct interest because I don't actually prescribe. However, HRT can be a serious help for women going through these issues, and the sooner you replace as you go into menopause, the better off it is because the body can use these hormones and we can stave off things like osteoporosis because we know that 20% of all bone loss happens in women with osteoporosis in that year or two around menopause. Right, So we can stave off menopausal symptoms. We can stave off osteoporosis. And guess what? When we go through menopause and we lose those hormones, we actually age match men for all-cause mortality. 
So what that means is, is when we go through menopause and we no longer have hormones available, we lose their protection. And up until menopause, we are actually protected against stroke, heart attack, and even cancer while we have those hormones circulating. But we see a a matching once we go through menopause. So essentially our risk for a heart attack is equal to a man's once we're in our 50s and in menopause. And I hate to break it to you, but one out of every two women will die of heart disease. So these hormones are protective and they also lead to an improvement in sleep and sleep recovery. But as a nutritionist, what I often do is help women affect these things naturally, which is going to bring me to my next part of this conversation. So what does the research show in the natural sort of nutritional and supplemental area that you could do? So what's interesting is some of your fermented soy products, things like tofu and your uh, miso and other soy products um, have, contain phytoestrogens. Also, things like flax contain phytoestrogens. Sweet potatoes contain phytoestrogens. These plant hormones are very similar to our own estrogen, albeit significantly weaker. And what we do know is when, when introduced into a woman's body, they can actually reduce some of those symptoms like hot flashes. And we have good research showing that. We also have good research showing that they can improve sleep because they have this very mild effect and they touch those receptors. Also supplements that contain things like ginseng, black cohosh, red clover, dong quai, and even things like maca all have a modulating effect on these sex hormones and improve the body's use of them because of their phytoestrogen-like activities. These things are something that we can also do. What about melatonin? So melatonin is the hormone produced by the pineal gland as the sun goes down. And when we talk about sleep hygiene, that's a much more loaded conversation about what you need to do to help produce melatonin. But melatonin requires the metabolism of serotonin. So I just already identified that the lack of estrogen is going to reduce your metabolism of serotonin and then therefore melatonin. So can we use melatonin strategically to help with sleep? Absolutely. And I can tell you, there's a lot of research out there looking at very high doses of melatonin, even in cancer treatment, things like 60 milligrams multiple times a day. So melatonin in our body not only helps with sleep, but it acts as an antioxidant. So the important thing to know is low doses of melatonin given before sleep actually help signal the brain that it's time to go to sleep. So melatonin is not really a sedative. It is better given an hour to an hour and a half prior to your desired sleep time. So you can signal to the brain, hey, it's coming because it actually kicks into gear a little bit higher. And you can do things like sustained release uh, melatonin and those things can also help as well. So melatonin can be helpful as well. Even serotonin precursors like 5-hydroxytryptophan can as well. Those are some of the many supplements. And I use a wide variety with the women I work with, both in the Hormone Reset and within my clinic at Living Well Dallas. And a lot of the times we're looking a little deeper. So we're actually looking at genetics to see what is your actual genetic makeup and your ability to control your circadian rhythm and your sleep. I'll give myself as an example. I have several unique mutations in my genes that affect a couple different things. First off, I have some that affect my circadian rhythm, which means I, I have a slightly skewed circadian rhythm. But even more importantly, I contain some mutations on my MAO enzyme that affects the levels of serotonin throughout the night. 
And what happens is as I go into those deeper sleep stages later in the morning, you know, like around midnight, one o'clock, I get a significant drop in serotonin. So what that means is, is that's going to cause sleep disruption. And often this is the person that falls asleep, stays asleep for a while and wakes up and will stay up for hours. Now, I also have done a bunch of things with airway and other things, but I have some genetics that leave me at a greater risk for sleep issues. So I do everything in my power to control for that because this research, at least today, shows that if I don't do a lot of those important sleep measures, I'm going to have less and less sleep as I age. But now that I know that, I can do the right things like hormone replacement therapy and also take care of myself and put the right supplements in to take care of that. So let's talk about some of the things everybody can do that's not supplementation. What we know is that definitely things like caffeine, coffee, stimulants keep us awake. And the reason why caffeine actually blocks a receptor in the brain for adenosine, and it's the buildup of adenosine over the course of the day that causes sleep inertia. So if I do a bunch of caffeine, it's going to block it. Now, some people like myself, I have a slow capacity to clear caffeine. So if I have a little bit of coffee in the morning, I'm okay, but I can't have a cup at noon or after lunch or mid-afternoon because I'm going to be up all night. So you have to know whether you tolerate caffeine or not. And if you're having sleep problems, we've got to get that out of there. The other thing is alcohol will mess up your sleep architecture. And for some people, All it takes is one and all it takes is even in the afternoon. So if you're struggling with sleep, you've got to check your alcohol intake because that is going to do it. And in everybody, it messes up your sleep architecture and quality, reducing deep sleep and REM sleep. Drinking water early in the day and not drinking late at night so you don't have to get up a million times to go to the bathroom. You want to be well hydrated, but you want to be well hydrated earlier in the day. Stress. It seems like no matter what we do, It's at night while we're sleeping when the brain wants to run amok and start to-do listing and worrying about everything that's going on. Supplements like L-theanine and um, Pharmagabin and GABA can help that. Even things like valerian root, passionflower, they help sort of calm the mind. But I have found that you should do other things like yoga and stretching and meditation. Those things can help you sort of move into a more relaxed parasympathetic state where the body is calm. Also, I find to-do listing before I leave the office, writing down all the things that I need to do and leaving that at the office helps. And then if I have personal things that I need to do, I try and make that list right after dinner. So I've kind of given it its home and I've sort of offloaded it from my brain. That's quite helpful. Developing a bedtime routine. So that means going to bed at the same time, waking up at the same time. Again, our body likes rhythm. And when we try and break that rhythm, it doesn't work very well. If you work shift work, that in itself is a carcinogen, right? So shift work, sleep apnea, and disturbed sleep patterns are a known carcinogen. And actually sleep apnea shortens your life more than smoking. Some of us work that. I work in healthcare and I work with a lot of healthcare people, both physicians. I see a ton of physicians and nurses in my practice. And sometimes they're stuck working shift work. My husband, heck, he's a firefighter. He works 24 hours at a time. So we have to work around that. So we have to protect those bedtime routines when we can and try and maintain decent bedtimes around shift work. If you wake up in the night, whether it's a night's bed or something else, you want to develop a good routine and you want to stay away from electronic devices. So for some people that might be doing breathing exercises, but avoid doing anything that will wake you up further. That means don't pick up something that lights. Don't 
don't engage yourself in other things. Sometimes for some people, it might actually be beneficial to change rooms because we also can develop sleep anxiety if we've been having sleep problems where subconsciously the mind starts to play this sort of nervous game about whether I'm going to sleep well or not because I haven't been sleeping well. So for somebody that may have been struggling with sleep for a long time, I will often have them pick a guest room or someplace else for a little while to reset that circadian rhythm. If you sleep with somebody who has terrible sleep issues, snoring, they wake up and stay up all night, they go to bed at 3 a.m., they watch TV all night, this is something where you need to start protecting your sleep. I consider sleep more paramount than, than anything else other than what you eat and getting adequate exercise. And I would put sleep in front of exercise. There is nothing more important than what you eat and how you sleep. And so that is a difficult conversation that you may need to have with a partner if they have terrible sleeping habits and they are keeping you awake. And actually, I saw a study and it was a big study and I can't remember where it came out. I want to say it was in the Wall Street Journal or maybe even Vanity Fair. But they did a study on couples and they found that the couples that actually slept in separate rooms had better relationships. Now, what that means is, is they probably had times where they were together in their room, snuggling and doing whatever you want to do in your bedroom. But it meant when they when they stopped that, they went and slept in separate rooms because they had different sleep needs. That's sometimes a hard pill for people to swallow, but that might be able to open up that conversation. If you're struggling, you need to keep your bedroom temperature cool. You want your core body temperature to go down. I tend to have cold feet, so I put warm socks on because that actually helps me fall asleep. And there are devices like the Uller cooling pad that can actually help cool your bed. Very cool. I bought one for my husband and I've got one for myself because they're amazing because they can actually control your body temperature over time. So there are things that can help with your sleep. But a cool bedroom that's dark, that doesn't have any disruption, even things like noise machines, like we have an air purifier in the room that acts as kind of a fan noise that helps block other things. Because the other thing that happens is your sleep gets lighter and lighter as this goes on. So distractions are very, very noticeable to you. Um, and then last but not least is really trying to keep that schedule. And especially no matter how tired you are, you don't want to nap during the day. So often we have to sort of reset this circadian rhythm by forcing you to do something that may be uncomfortable because naps during the day are going to mess up that sleep inertia at night. The other thing we commonly do is often we're so tired, we'll go to bed really early at night and then we're waking up at like 3 a.m. So the other thing we're doing when we're trying to reset that circadian rhythm is we might push that going to sleep time later so we can force a longer sleep window to start resetting it. The other most important thing to circadian rhythm is actually getting up and getting early bright sunlight exposure to your body and your eyes in the morning. So that means going outside, looking at the sun, giving it a few minutes. I recommend 15 to 20 minutes because that actually helps your circadian rhythm for hours later. It actually tells your brain it's time to go to sleep several hours from now. If you are a woman in perimenopause and menopause and you are experiencing sleep problems, it is not in your head. There is an absolute correlation and causation with the loss of progesterone and estrogen that are contributing to that. And there are things that we can do naturally that aren't hormone replacement. However, I am a big proponent for hormone replacement because, because of the other protective things that it does. And so that's an option as well. But I've given you a bunch of choices and things you can do on this presentation and on this show today that you can really use to help start resetting your sleep. Thank you, everybody, for listening to This Functional Life. 
I hope you have a healthy and happy rest of your week. Thank you so much for tuning into this functional life. You are why I'm here and I am so very grateful. You're here for a reason. I celebrate your commitment to claiming your youthful energy and stepping into this next phase of life, feeling vibrant, healthy, and powerful. I am so proud of you. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD. And if you want a chance to share your story with our tribe or find out more about working with my team, you can sign up at chatwithbetty.com slash podcast. Again, that's chatwithbetty.com slash podcast. See you next week. Bye-bye.